Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Friends, I'm excited to let you know about Connection Summit Conversations. This is six candid conversations between Marissa Martino, myself, and occasionally a special guest, covering everything from the human half of dealing with dog-directed reactivity to the importance of play. So check out the link in the show notes. We're getting started soon, and you won't want to miss it. Today, I am talking about teenagers. Not teenage humans, teenage dogs, and not really teen in years, but kind of their teenage stage, which is um, sort of considered to be around six months to two or three years of age. And this is something that dog owners talk about, that dog trainers talk about, but, you know, good training is good training. So no matter how old your dog is, the same approaches are pretty much going to apply. However, there's a unique set of issues that comes with adolescence. That's true for any kind of social mammalian species that you're going to look at. And so I think it's important for us to talk about what those are and how we can support our dog through that time and then come out liking them on the other end. And uh, at the time of this recording, Rhea is freshly 10 months of age, my little puppy. And so that puts her right in Teenageville. She's wrapping up her first ever heat cycle. So the hormones are raging and I'm definitely seeing the issues that come up for a lot of people. The good news is I expect them and I know how to respond to them. And so Rhea and I aren't really having any struggles um, with these issues. And I think that that can be true for everyone. So full disclosure, I do teach a six-week course on this. It's called Teenage Tyrants. It's currently available at FDSA, and we'll make sure to include a link in the show notes to get registered for it. At the time this episode is airing, registration is just about to open, so you'll be able to hop in that class if this is of interest to you. But hopefully, um, if the class is not right for you this time around, you will get some tips anyway. So here's the things that we can expect when our dogs are going through this developmental stage. Here's, and also some of the things that we might think we're seeing that aren't necessarily true. And that that falls under the category of, you know, what's normal and what's not. I really emphasize the choice versus no choice communication system for dogs of this age. I hopefully have already laid the groundwork for my dog to understand this when my dog is a puppy. And so when they're a teenager, it's just continuing to reinforce that communication, continuing to have those conversations with the dog and it's conversations they've already seen and heard about. But what I see as puppies start stop being puppies and start being adolescents is that 
their interest in their own freedom starts to outweigh their interest in what you have. And this can be certainly, this can vary by breed um, or individual, just like anything else we might talk about. But if you have one of those breeds that's often kind of labeled independent, hint, you might really be seeing this in a, in a really big way. And that doesn't mean these dogs are not trainable and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. What it means is that you need to be smart and you need to be smart in the ways that you orchestrate your communication with this dog. So what do I mean by choice versus no choice? I want to give my teen as many choices as possible because they value freedom so much, especially during this phase, and they value getting to have control over their own lives so much during this phase. I want to give them as much of that as I possibly can because I don't want to be the bad guy. I want to be on the same team as them always. I'm going to come back to this concept of not putting yourself on an opposing team with your dog again and again. One of the ways we can do that is to provide as much choice and as much freedom as possible. But what that also means is that we have to have clarity surrounding moments that do not include a choice. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. If I need my dog to get in the car so that we can go home from somewhere, like we're out on a trail, that has to be a no choice situation because you have to get in the car. I can't leave you at the trailhead and I might be done walking. It might be dark. It might be starting to rain. I mean, whatever, right? For whatever reason, I'm done walking. We need to get in the car now. Vice versa is also true. If I'm leaving to take you to your exercise, I am not going to give you a choice about getting in the car. So because I I don't want to honor a no in that situation. And that is the really important piece, y'all. If you give your dog a choice, if you say, it's okay, sweetie, you can jump in the car or not. And then your dog says, well, okay, then I'd rather not jump in the car. And you make him do it anyway. That is the most insidious thing you can possibly do to your relationship is to offer a choice and then not honor that choice. If you override their communication to you, when you opened the door to that communication, you have done way more damage, way more damage than the person who never gives the dog a choice at all. So... What I'm going to do is have two very clear communication systems. One that means it is your choice to get in the car right now. And if you do, I'll give you a cookie. And if you don't, you can stay home. Or I will take you by the collar, bring you or carry you, bring you to the car and insist that you get in the car. Now, can you give food after that? You can. But um, I don't actually, I, you know, to me, it's more like a sorry, <laughs> sorry, I did that to you. Here's here's a cookie. I never lure them with food. I never try to pull them into the car with the food. I don't throw the food in the crate and kind of wait for them to make a choice. I just put them in and then feed them. The luring part is really important because that is kind of lying. That's kind of saying you have a choice because when, when we use food in training, your choice is to eat it or not. But then if you're going to actually lure them into a situation they don't want to be in, you're really damaging that lure and you're damaging that paradigm that you have with them in training. So in the case of the car, I'm either going to carry you or guide you physically in some other way to the car when it's not your choice. And when it is your choice, I'm going to open the car crate and ask you to hop in, which is something I've hopefully shaped you to do, clicker trained you to do at some point so you know how to do it.
Another really good example is going to be husbandry behaviors. So any kind of grooming or veterinary type of procedures. My dogs are all trained at some level for cooperative care, but I do not engage in a cooperative care kind of system with them if what they're having done is not optional. So a good example is um, one of my dogs had to have sub-Q fluids. It was like uh, several months ago, nearly a year ago, actually. Um, and he was very sick and he had to have sub-Qs at home. And so that can't be a choice. You're very sick. The sub-Q fluids are necessary for you to get better. And so I am not, I'm not giving you a choice. And I have a whole system where it's the exact way that I hold on to you. And the fact that I don't allow you to get out of the situation. And the fact that I am not waving reinforcement in your face saying, do it for this cookie. I'm not giving you a choice. I'm not asking you for behaviors, you guys. Because if we train behaviors with positive reinforcement, then they inherently involve choice. If we are not training with coercive methods, with forcing the dog to do stuff, then, then our training inherently is choice-based, which is a good thing. And you want to leave it like that. So I did my restraint procedure that I teach for no choice options. The sub cues went in. All was right with the world. On the flip side, I might set him up to have a choice to be brushed. I don't have to brush you today. Um, I want to because you'll look prettier for whatever we're doing. You know, whatever, right? Maybe I don't have to brush you today. Rarely do I have to brush a dog, which you probably know if you've seen my dogs. <laughs> um, but I'm going to ask you then to stand and I'm going to begin to brush you. And I usually use some kind of target so that the dog's front feet are targeted or their nose is targeted so that they're still. And if you disengage that target, I will stop brushing you. But if you continue to target and I get to finish br brushing, I'm going to mark and reward. That's so different from I'm going to restrain you and you're going to have sub fluids put in, right? So I have, so what I would not do is ask the dog to target, attempt the sub cues, have the dog say, whoa, whoa, that, that hurts and I don't want to do it, back out of the target and say, sorry, kid, and then restrain. Because that, again, is the most damaging thing I can do. So when I talk about teens, I'm talking a lot about where we can offer them choice and control and how to give them as much of that as possible. And then also to set up very, very clear communication surrounding those no choice moments so that we don't ever get into those murky waters of I asked you a question, but I didn't accept your answer because that just undermines trust. It destroys everything. It's such a big problem. So that's a huge topic in the course. Um, and those are some examples that you can certainly go forward with. Another great example might be that I hold up two different clothing items to my dog. I hold up maybe a martingale lead and a harness. And I've taught my dog that, which you can teach in like two reps, um, that the one that he targets, I'm going to put on his body. So it's not target, click, treat. It's you target it, I put it on you, then I treat. And that way the dog can choose what they wear. I can hold up two harnesses at the trailhead maybe and the dog can target one and I put that one on. That's a simple way that I can offer choice that also works for me in the sense that the dog's going to pick one and then I'm going to put a harness on because I wanted a harness on. I wouldn't ask that question if no harness was 
not okay with me. So if the dog doesn't target either harness because they understand this game and they don't want to wear a harness, fine, you're not wearing a harness today, right? So that's okay with me. So I might offer that choice. Really similar ways we can do this, offer food, different food chewy items. So like here's a bully stick and here's a no hide type of chew. Which one would you like today? And the dog will, can take the one that he wants out of my hands. These are just simple ways that we can offer choice and control over their own outcomes and their own situations. There's a lot of them in the course and the big, big important thing is how we orchestrate those no choice moments so that we don't do any damage by asking them. Because here's what happens when we teach them that we won't listen to them, right? So when we teach them, when I give you a cue, I'm going to make you do it whether you said yes or not. When we teach them that, then they start to get avoidant. They start to look at us. They start to raise an eyebrow and go, I don't, I don't think that you calling me inside right now is actually a good idea for me because I want to stay in the backyard and I don't trust that you're asking me that, right? I think you're going to just take my freedom, not give me anything better, and I'd rather just stay in the backyard. Well, if it's a choice to stay in the backyard, then okay, ask the dog to come in. Right? Give the dog a cue to come in and go to a station um, for food. But if the dog has to come in, right, because it's bedtime or because you're leaving or, or something like that, you need to not give them that choice and you need to have very clear boundaries around um, how you communicate that. And so this is all about observing behavior. If the dog starts to hesitate when you open that back door and doesn't want to come in, that dog starts to drag a long line for a while so that you can go ahead and guide them in if they don't want to come in, right? So it's about being smart about these things that are normal, that are going to happen because what we must never do. So I already said one thing we need to never, ever do, which is ask the question if we're not going to accept whatever answer they have, right? So if I ask you yes or no and you say no and I do the thing anyway, I've done a lot of damage, right? So I'm not going to ask you if no isn't an okay answer. And I'm going to get really, really clear in my head about what situations I can and cannot accept no in. Because I got news for you. It's probably a lot more situations that you can accept no than you're currently comfortable with. Right? Like toenails kind of need to be done. But if the dog says no after you've cut two you should give them a break and not cut the rest. You should revisit it the next day. And that makes a lot of people insane because now two, nail, two nails are cut and not the rest of them, right? So if you know that makes you too insane, then I guess you have to make it a no choice moment. But I want as many choice moments as possible, which means that that's a choice moment. The other thing we must never ever do that y'all, oh my gosh, everybody does it, is not trick them. Here's what tricking them looks like. They are in the backyard, they're refusing to come in. And so you go inside and get your car keys and jingle your car keys because they'll think you're going for a ride and they will come in. And then they come in and you close the door and you put your car keys away. You lied. You said, hey, we're getting in the car. So they said, oh, in that case, I will come in. And then you didn't follow up on that promise. It's really damaging. Okay, they really, if you get in a habit of tricking them, they are just going to get in the habit of, outsmarting you every single time, especially if you've got a really sharp breed. I mean, I get, I have border collies, adolescent border collies can outthink you any day of the week. 
I promise. And they will if you are tricking them, which will encourage them to do so. So another um, example of tricking them might be, again, that you uh, can't catch them for whatever reason. You can't get them to come to you. And so you get out like their favorite toy and maybe a piece of training equipment so that they'll run over to you. And then you grab them and then you do whatever you needed to do. Big fat liar. Do not lie to your dog, right? So don't lie to them. Don't trick them. I don't care how big of a rush you're in, right? If you need to trick them um, because it's a dangerous situation, right? Because you can't get a hold of them in the field or something like that, do it. Do it that one time to get yourself out of Dodge and never, ever let it happen again. And the way you don't let it happen again is you go home and you make a plan to make sure that never happens again. Because if you do that twice, you are so screwed, you're never getting a hold of that dog again in those situations. You also need to think about, so when thinking about tyrants, know that building up reinforcement rituals is one of the smartest uses of your time possible. What is a reinforcement ritual? Well, a ritual is just something that's kind of done in a predictive way every single time. And what happens when you ritualize reinforcement is it becomes more powerful. So a cookie is just a cookie, but a cookie surrounded by a ritual is much more powerful than that. And if the dog can expect that reinforcement ritual in certain situations, or you can cue the reinforcement uh, ritual in certain situations, now you can really get some powerful behaviors to happen for you. So uh, reinforcement rituals might be that every single night when we go to bed, there's a special treat in the back of your crate. And when we head in, I tell you to crate and there it is. And then I also throw a handful of kibble in after you. So it's just a ritual of there's that really great thing that you want and it's always here at this specific time. And now I have produced the behavior that I am after. Other rituals might be that I have hidden something really delicious or really fun toy in the wheel well of my car. So when we head back to the car at the trailhead, it doesn't necessarily mean the walk is over. It could mean that we're heading for that ritual. And you might head for that ritual and then go back on another walk, right? That's not tricking because you didn't lie, because you gave them exactly what you asked for. If you didn't stash that reinforcer and you need them to get in the car and you lie to them and tell them that reinforcer is there to get them in the car, then you lied, then you're a dirty, dirty trickster and the dog will not trust you anymore. So building up a lot of reinforcement rituals is a thing that we spend a lot of time on in class. And then understand that at this age, dogs have heightened reactions to things. Okay, so a lot of people with adolescent dogs go, oh my gosh, my dog is reactive. They label their dog reactive and they stop exposing their dog to the world because their dog is barky lungy. Understanding what is just an overreaction for an adolescent brain to be having versus what is something that needs kind of clinical intervention is something that we discuss in the course. And here are some kind of bullet list points. Um, and I'll give you an example next. So some bullet list points to kind of look at would be was my dog already interested in that thing and is now having a big kind of frustration-based response to getting to that thing because so far I haven't put that many rules on it? That's normal. You just need some rules, okay? 
Is my dog panicking and screaming at things that they thought were fine a second ago? A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that's a fear period. Technically speaking, there is not an adolescent fear period um, that we that we know of that we can kind of count on. And, you know, you can fight me on that one if you want to, but it's not something I observe in dogs that are temperamentally sound. I do observe border collies going through, in particular, going through very weird adolescent stages where things are scary to them. But it's not a fear period because it's not acute. It's not an acute onset. It happens for months and months. It's really, And it can just be really hard. And usually they just need support. Usually that's what they need. And I will guide you in that support in the course. But... Sometimes it's normal and you need to just kind of ride it out, but sometimes you need clinical intervention. And if you, you might need clinical intervention if the dog begins to exhibit other anxiety, other signs of anxiety, is not responding to basic interventions on the reactivity, that sort of thing. Uh, recently, I had Rhea, uh, it was probably about a month ago, on a trail, and it was a super tight trail, so it was just kind of a perfect storm of events. I heard somebody really whistling and yelling up the trail and that set her off. I mean, she was already on high alert about that. I went ahead and leashed my dogs and pulled them over because it sounded like somebody was trying desperately to get control over their dog. And I don't want any part of that. So I leashed my dogs, we kind of pulled over, which is not what I like to do, but I'm trying to stay safe, right? Well, it turns out it was not their dog. It was all of their several children <laughs> that they couldn't control that they were whistling and yelling at. And then I had a family with several small children barreling down a super tight trail towards my dogs. And Rhea, well, she went apeshit. She was really barky, barky, screamy, big fat pupils, very, very upset. And Rhea loves children. Rhea has actually a really cute, like, instant response to children. She adores children. But screaming and running down a trail when we're all in a tight scenario is really tough. My border collies were brilliant. They all hung out in their downstays eating food. Rhea lost her mind and it actually took her a while to recover and then I proceeded to have a night-long panic attack about it and then I woke up the next morning and was like what would you tell a client and what I would tell a client is I bet she's gonna have a heat cycle soon and guess what she did two weeks later um have her heat cycle so her hormones were spiking her reaction that day was a lot bigger than it normally would be it was not her normal and I have to relate it to the hormones. We have not had a big problem like that since. She's been doing great. And it's important to kind of have a person in your back pocket through these times to say, hey, I think that's normal. I think you should just ride that out. I don't think you should go full-blown B-mod on that or put the dog on medication. I think you should just work um, on supporting that dog and building your ritualized reinforcement and building the trust between the two of you. That's teenagers, man. Teenage tyrants. They value their freedom more than your classic reinforcers. They start to want to be free more than they want food. They start to want to be free more than they want toys. So it's important to give them as much freedom as humanly possible while keeping them safe. It is a very tricky tightrope to have to walk. And I'm certain that anybody who's listening to this with human teenage children knows exactly what I mean <laughs> about that tightrope know that they're going to have bigger reactions to stuff and you're going to need to know how to support them. Lots of stuff in the class on that. They're going to have opinions about your rituals. So you've got to stand firmly in your rituals and continue to do them. And you must, above all, never trick them and be very, very clear about when they don't have a choice. 
So I hope that if you have a teen right now or will very soon, that I will see you in class. Okay, and some Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Connor. They write, any tips for flying with a puppy in cabin? I've flown with dogs in cargo countless times, but never with one I need to keep calm and ideally quiet-ish for a couple hours. So it's really hard to know how this is going to go when you're picking up a brand new puppy. So there's a difference between kind of preparing an older dog for flying in cabin and, and, and worrying about a puppy flying in cabin because you don't have a whole lot of control over what the puppy is going to do or how the puppy is going to act. So let me take a couple different approaches to answering your question. The first is what I know you're asking, which is about going to pick up a brand new puppy and coming home. If the breeder is the kind of person that um, you can do this with, have the breeder introduce the puppy to the airline bag. So start feeding meals in the airline bag, maybe sleeping overnight in the airline bag if the puppy's not distressed about that. Basically introduce it as a crate, as a place to eat and sleep. And hopefully that will help the puppy go, oh, this is just a place I rest when the puppy does see the bag. If that's not possible, you are pretty much relying on the resilience of this puppy that you're buying. And hopefully you're buying a puppy with a nice temperament who's going to do just fine, but might be a little bit screamy. So as far as the screaminess goes, try to help that puppy be tired before you get on the plane. So really, you know, take that puppy on an adventure, help that puppy be as tired as possible when you show up at the airport so that they are likely to go into the bag and sleep. A lot of puppies are overwhelmed and stressed by this whole process. That is just kind of life. I think you'll learn a lot about that puppy on that on that uh, first flight that you take. And, you know, most of the time it works out just fine. Sometimes they scream. A really nice thing to do is to just have some Starbucks gift cards or, you know, pick your, you know, whatever you like to hand out to people who are sharing a row with you or maybe the people sitting in front of you to just kind of say, hey, I know my puppy's screaming. Thanks for being chill about it. A friend of mine recently picked up a German Shepherd puppy and she was, she knew he was just going to scream his head off. He actually didn't, but she was afraid he would. And I said, you know, just buy drinks for the row, right? Just, you know, you can always soften the people's responses by being open and communicative about it to begin with. And by, you know, maybe offering to make their flight a little bit easier by buying them a drink or whatever, right? So there's not a ton to be done if it is a brand new puppy and you don't have a lot of time. However... I'm currently teaching Raya to be comfortable riding in an airline bag because she didn't get too big for that. So I'm really excited to have a dog that can travel with me when travel becomes more of a thing for me again. And so I'm working right now on her comfort of going into the bag, lying down, and just kind of chilling out in the bag. Another step that I will be taking is just taking her to the airport and having her be in the bag. I will put the bag on top of my rolly suitcase, push her around in it, you know, things like that, which I will, of course, introduce to her beforehand. Right now, she's pretty magnetized to the bag. In fact, if I'm trying to pick it up, she will jump up and try to jump in it (laughs) as I'm walking out of the training session. So that's good, but that's pretty different from lying down in it and being quiet for a long time. So I'm going to go through some of my happy crating procedures with the airline bag before I ever have her um, on a plane. And Happy Crating is a course that I have available through my website, and I will link that for you all in the show notes. But Connor, best of luck. Buy some people drinks. (laughs) Have a nice time. (laughs) 
Next one comes from Jasper. Jasper writes, my partner has a seven-month-old Aussie pup, Cherub, and I have my weirdo rescue border collie, Addie. <laughs> now medicated and thriving, thanks to your advice. Well, that's awesome, Jasper. One of the issues we're having with her has me at a loss. At home, when she plays with my border collie, he manages her craziness really well. They take turns, stop for breaks, and only play for short periods. It's great until we're out of the house. Upon arrival to a park or nature reserve, she absolutely loses her shit for two to five minutes, barking and screaming, grabbing his scruff, chasing him, and it sounds awful listening to her. We often get concerned looks. Once the initial excitement is done, we can get on with our nature walk, where the two of them will run, play, and decompress. She's often at work with me at dog daycare, where she plays appropriately with a variety of dogs with occasional excited barking, but none of the insane over-the-top barking there. I thought, what would Sarah Strebing do? So currently she leaves the car with my partner two minutes before me with my border collie. They do loose leash walking training on the path to the reserve. She's let off leash and gets to run some of her initial excitement out. She's fantastic during this time, and he's told me about some lovely interactions she's had with other dogs. I'll then arrive with my border collie and let him off. She'll be excited and bark a bit and still seem a little wor worked up, but nowhere near the level we were seeing previously. How would you approach the situation? Similar or different management, some kind of training, or simply accept that this is an Aussie thing and readjust my expectations? And side note, we're in full lockdown and only allowed an hour of exercise a day, oh my gosh, and can't go more than five kilometers from home, so we may be limited until our lockdown ends. Jasper, great question, and actually you did do what I would do. <laughs> Having the puppy go first and get some of those yayas out without directing the yayas at the border collie is exactly, is exactly what I would do. So you're handling it perfectly well. I would just gradually over time have the border collie situated into the mix sooner and sooner in that process. The other thing to do um, would be to see if it's possible for both dogs to be on leash practicing loose leash walking to the preserve and then practicing some control behaviors like downstays, um, sits and things like that at the, the off leash area and then maybe have them come off leash to a big giant scatter in the field. So a big scatter of food so that they eat first before going crazy. That's another thing to try. That may not be achievable yet. You may have um, several weeks left of just having the, the Aussie go first. And you're handling it really well. You said that the puppy's seven months old. That's a really hard time to be an Australian Shepherd. <laughs> so I would I would expect to be doing the separate entrances to the park until she's at least a year or more. And hopefully then you've kind of passed through that craziness and she'll be less crazy and it will be, the whole thing will just be kind of easier for you to navigate. You are doing a good job, so really just keep it up. Okay, next one comes from Anna. And uh, Nikki also chimed in that this is an issue they are having. So Anna writes about her border collie, Ned, who's a year old, who has a really hard time chasing cars and having kind of reactivity towards traffic. So this is such a normal thing for young border collies. And... I may do a full episode on things like this. That's kind of what Anna was asking for. But nobody's going to like my answer. And my answer is that asking a border collie who wants to stalk and chase traffic, um, which is something that 
they are kind of designed to want to do. And um, a friend of mine who has her first border collie jokes that there needs to be a manual that comes with your first border collie um, or every border collie that you get that says, here's all the things that are going to be problems for you that they're going to want to do. And here's how to avoid those problems developing. Um, That doesn't exist yet to my knowledge. (laughs) And so What's really hard about border collies that want to stalk, chase uh, traffic or bikes or joggers, so like anything fast moving, is number one, it's dangerous. And so we can't let it happen. And number two, it's natural and normal for them. So can you train out of it? It will be very hard for you to do. What is best is that you don't expose them. And I know, Anna, this doesn't help you, so I'm going to help you in a second, but what is best is that you don't expose them to these triggers that are literally going to turn on the part in their brain that says stock chase until you have taught them a lot of other behaviors that are reliable that you can ask them to do instead, right? So I wouldn't walk my border collie on a road with traffic until I knew that my border collie could practice loose leash walking next to me, eating food in a variety of circumstances. And I don't think people understand that asking your border collie not to stalk and chase fast moving objects like that is like writing to me and saying, you know, I am a guinea pig breeder. I have a guinea pig farm and I also have a Parson Russell Terrier and I really need my Parson Russell to like do farm chores with me and be inside the guinea pig enclosure and not hurt any of my guinea pigs. How can I do that? Should I train him to relax on a mat? And now if you know Parson Russell's or, you know, fill in the blank, any hunting terrier, you know that that's a big ask. It is not different with these border collies and these fast moving objects. It's, it's also a really, really big ask and might actually be an unfair ask. So I do not make a habit of walking my dogs near traffic. I know that that's a privilege that I have, that I can put them in a car and take them somewhere else to walk them. You mentioned, Anna mentions in her um, writing that she lives near a stretch of uh, beach that is just 700 meters away. So she would like to be able to walk that tiny stretch of road to the beach with the dog. But driving to the beach is better, even if it's short. If I had to drive a quarter mile to walk my dogs, to not walk them near traffic, I would. And that's when they're young, especially, because my dogs now, I could walk them on a street like that to get there because I didn't allow any of those behaviors to develop and they have a huge repertoire of other behaviors that I can ask them for if they're faced with those sorts of things. So um, Anna's question kind of had to do with, you know, how do I find suitable places to desensitize to traffic? Well. I, I am not sure I can help you with that. You could certainly start outside of parking lots where cars will not be moving super fast. But I also just have to say that building up some other skills and giving the dog a diet from that trigger for a long time is going to be really, really important. Um, your dog's only a year old, but this is when these things tend to really peak. So stop walking him near any kind of traffic and build up his other skills, build up his ability to walk with you, to do a sit stay, to do a nose target, to do a lot of behaviors for you in a variety of circumstances. And then you can kind of think about introducing harder triggers like cars that are far away. I'm sorry that I don't have a better answer for you, but it is true that we need to 
we need to just be really mindful of what kind of dogs we have and what their natural inclinations are going to be. Because if that guinea pig farmer were a real person and they reached out to me for help, I would tell them that they bought the wrong dog for them. And that, I mean, I would be nicer than that, but, but I would basically say you're asking too much. Your Jack Russell is never going to be safe in your guinea pig pen unless they're not a very good Jack Russell. Okay. So I know it's not a great answer. And again, I may revisit it um, in, a, in a longer episode, but that's my answer for now. Next one comes from Jenny. Jenny writes, so I've been binging your podcast. Um, thank you, Jenny. And I heard you say something that made a huge light bulb go off. And I wanted to ask a follow-up question. Love it. I love these follow-up questions over in Patreon. That's kind of why Patreon is here. I think it was in the Being Flexible chat that you talked about how to teach recalls. And y'all, Being Flexible was a Facebook Live I did on my Facebook page, The Cognitive Canine. And it you can find those under videos on The Cognitive Canine on Facebook. So back to Jenny's question. I think it was in the Being Flexible chat that you talked about how you teach recalls by constantly training while you are on hikes or walks with your dogs and how that is challenging for some clients to be on a walk and training the whole time. How are you balancing that constant training with allowing for decompression? Is it more that you yourself are constantly monitoring the environment, paying check-ins, pulling your dogs over on the trail, and perhaps doing an occasional recall as needed and engaging your dogs only when needed? This makes so much sense to me as an approach, human on the lookout, watching for distractions and opportunities for reinforcement, dog decompressing with bits of training sprinkled through the walk. I just wanted to make sure I was on the right track. You're exactly right, Jenny. That is that is exactly what I mean. So I want the walk to be very decompressing for both of you. But while you're needing to actively train, it will be less decompressing for one of you and it should be you. It shouldn't be your dog. So what I mean by being constantly training is I mean that you are hypervigilant, you're always looking for opportunities to reinforce, you're paying attention to your dog's behaviors, you are actively shaping the behaviors that you want to see every walk that you're on. That is what I mean. I don't mean that your dog is under lock and key and constantly being kind of told what to do or or, you know, just actively trained or being cued all of the time. I want the dog mostly sniffing around, running around, being a dog, and I want you paying attention to what behaviors you want to reinforce. Okay, next is from Nikki who writes, how do you feel about the push to get dogs running full speed right away because it's easier to slow them down and get precision versus speed increases with confidence? Oh boy, (laughs) my guy is hella fast when running and playing and when confident in exactly what I want. He's pretty worried if it's a new skill and slows up, Um, but definitely waiting for the reinforcement to know he's right. I truly try to never correct him on course unless it's a stay or contact issue, but my training partners want me to do more flat out exciting drills because they think he's not over the top. I don't think he's over the top when running in the field, just totally clear on what he's doing. I also don't think he's over the top when he runs full speed. I think he truly knows what I'm asking. How do you balance the need to educate with the need for drive? A recent clinician said, this dog is built for speed. What a pity if he stays this speed his whole life. And I was crushed because it was a new skill, something we hadn't done. Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, shame on that clinician um, for saying something like that to you. That's not how we teach. That's not, that's not being a good teacher. I actually agree with you completely, Nikki. So um, I'm really big into speed increases with confidence. I'm into the right mindset for the dog. And also you mentioned later that your dog is only 15 months, so give him a break, right? He's 
a baby, a literal baby. So if the dog's capable of running fast and the dog does run fast once they understand what's going on, then if your training is good and you are layering in all of the skills the dog needs, then the dog will be as fast as he's comfortable being on a course. A lot of dogs can run a lot faster in a field than they can on a course. It depends on their body structure. It depends on what they were made to do. For instance, a lot of sight hounds who are absolutely built for flat out running and speed trot in agility courses because they can't run and then collect jump in the tiny spaces that we do agility courses in. So you need to pay attention to what type of dog you have. So it is important for us to make sure that our training plans are are really solid. So if he's worried when there's a new skill, it's because the new skill is not being made clear enough or not being broken down enough. Does that make sense? So I really, really encourage you to get over on the Synergy Dog Sports Facebook group, which is Megan Foster's Facebook group, and really look at some awesome agility training being done because it should be broken down in such a way that he feels confident from the beginning. He shouldn't ever have to get through being worried about it. And so that's one thing to fix is to really take a hard look at your training. And the people that you're training with are valuing something different than you are. So it may be time for you to split from them or absolutely keep training with them if you want, but make sure that you stick to your guns and have your own plans for this dog. It's not just about lack of correction. It is about clarity. It's always about clarity. So you also mentioned, so Nikki also writes, he's totally a stressed down dog ever since a puppy, taking him in public and people think I'm a drill sergeant in obedience because he's so responsive, but never hyper. Occasionally barks lunge at prey-sized puppies, but we're working that out. And it only happens when I'm a bad handler. And you also write, how do I say, hey, let's give him a second to learn the skill at his speed and then try it fast with people who have a completely different paradigm. I mean, you're just fighting against the grain. Definitely check out the Going Against the Grain podcast because I think that answers a lot of these questions. You're thinking correctly. They don't have to be fast right out the gate. In fact, I prefer that they're not. I prefer that they are being thoughtful the whole time. And then make sure that the dog doesn't have any environmental concerns. And if he does, that you are addressing that. Uh, Keep up the good work. Keep trying. And last one comes from Lena, who writes, I would love to hear more about fence barrier barking. Not that kind when the dog is reactive, even in other situations, but only when behind a barrier. My dog is social, but not that interested in a lot of greeting out in the world, but barks a lot behind a barrier. At home in the garden, see something in the window or crated in the car when she visibly can see a dog or human. She's a one-year-old miniature American Shepherd. Today, I just call her to me and either give her a treat and let her do a nose touch for a treat, but that does not yet get her to come to me directly when she sees something, which I hope she would. We'll have thoughts on this. So, Lena, it's really, really common for dogs to... I think kind of find the bravery inside themselves to be reactive when there's a barrier. So when they know an altercation cannot happen, they're going to go ahead and go apeshit behind that barrier. And what's important then is that you take strides to help them be more comfortable, any strides that you can take to help them be more comfortable with whatever that trigger is. And then I avoid situations where they have to see something like that that's so triggering when they're behind a barrier. So I 
put up covers on my crates or my windows. I, I mean, I, I go to great lengths to not have my dog practice that behavior because it's usually highly reinforcing. It feels good and then the thing always goes away. Other things that I've done before, and you need to be safe about this, so make sure that um, the dog is on a leash or that the dog is truly social, I just go open that crate door. And if the dog comes busting out the crate door, I go, oh, you're, you're not allowed to just bust out a crate door. Get back in. Get back in. I will release you, right? So now our crate is open and the trigger is there. And you're offering me to stay in and now I'm going to feed you. And then I might try to close the door a second. If you stay calm, I'll feed you again. So, so things like that, just remove the barrier if you can to, um, to kind of minimize that response. But also just avoid that response because it is so natural and normal that the reason you're not getting away from it with um, that DRA procedure that you mentioned is because it is the dog's first inclination. Thanks everybody for your questions. Are you on Patreon yet? It's where you can get all the extras for this podcast. The original tier over there still exists where the dog people of the internet provide the questions for the episodes and guide the content of the podcast. But there's a new tier. You can become a Cog Dogarino and get access to my training sessions with my own dog. So that includes agility, obedience, behavior, and stuff with my brand new puppy, Rhea, live guest chats, and more. So go to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. The link is in the show notes. You don't want to miss out.